Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello, hello. It is Sally. I'm so happy to be here with you right now. I have quite a roundup of an experiment to share with you today. I have mentioned before on the podcast that I really enjoy rereading books. I dedicated an entire segment to explaining my case for why I love it so much, what I get out of it, what you might enjoy from it. On that episode, I mentioned my semi-regular reread of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and it struck me that a book I was assigned my freshman year in high school, which was well over 20 years ago, my friends, I was struck by how it has stuck with me for so long, and it got me curious about other books I remember reading then and how I might feel about them now. You know, high school is such a pivotal time in our development, and it really was a a pivotal time for me also as a reader. I really got exposed to a lot of different genres and writing styles and, and different authors. And I was lucky enough to have a really diverse required reading list throughout high school. So I thought it would be fun to go back, reread a couple of those and see how it might go. I chose a book that I loved then, a book I disliked and a book that I was kind of middle of the road on. And I wanted to reflect on what I remember from reading them back then and what I think about them now. So I started with The Awakening by Kate Chopin. This was my middle tier book. It tells the story of Edna, a wife and a mother who isn't feeling particularly fulfilled in either of those roles. I remember enjoying this, like, fine. And finding the discussion of women's roles within it interesting. This was the same semester that I read The Yellow Wallpaper, which I absolutely adored. And I think comparing the two at the time made The Awakening not quite as impressive to me because to me, they kind of were dealing with similar themes and maybe kind of written in similar styles. And so it just, I just couldn't help but compare them. And reading it now, I feel about the same. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. For the first chunk of the book, I was barely engaged. I almost considered DNFing it and choosing something else instead for this experiment. I am glad that I stuck with it, but my impression of it is still that it doesn't go as far as I want it to. I don't know. I guess I kind of want it to be like unhinged maybe or or just, I don't know, lean more deeply into the themes of like ennui and depression and I don't know, questioning why certain roles land the way that they do. I can appreciate how at the time it was pushing the envelope, but I guess it's just one of those you had to be there things. I don't know. Content warnings in this one for suicide and infidelity. I do still recommend it. I'm glad that I read it, but I feel about the same. Next up, I read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Y'all, please don't hate me, but I disliked this book immensely when I read it in high school. The thing I remember most at the time was that I was disappointed because I knew that people loved and admired Toni Morrison. And so when I didn't love this book, I was like, oh no, I'm not one of the cool kids. I I don't deserve literature. I don't get it. Since that, like after that, I have read other, I did read other Toni Morrison books. 
ones that I really did enjoy, like Sula and Beloved. But the bluest eye just kind of felt like this haunting presence in my life that I couldn't get past. I am happy to report. How do I feel about it now? I gave it four stars. Looking back, oh, I'm just now realizing I skipped saying what this book is about. I'm so sorry. It is about a little girl, Pakala Breed Love, and oh God, just the tragic series of events that happened in her life. And looking back, I don't think I was emotionally prepared as a reader back then, like as a teenager, to take in something so personally triggering. It's not just that it was a tough read because of the heavy topics, content warnings for rape, pedophilia, racism, animal cruelty, like so many. I remember reading and enjoying, I mean, if you know, in quotes, other appreciating. I remember reading and appreciating other books at the time that were also really heavy, but they weren't as personally triggering to me in the same way. When I really reflected, like as I was reading and then in reading the author's note as well, which I really appreciated, I think the reframe for me was that it helped clarify that what I was getting from the bluest eye at the time is the recognition that people could and did hate me for who I was, what I represented, that they could abuse me and get away with it and like everything was fine. I just think that at the time, it was probably too much for me to handle in a book. Like it was too confronting and I didn't know how to navigate that. And I probably wasn't adequately warned. But now as an adult with like years of personal growth (laughs) and decades of reading, it landed differently. I was able to really appreciate the book for what it was. Not a joy to read by any means, to be clear. But I'm really grateful that I reread it. I'm really grateful that with distance and more maturity, I was able to still like really appreciate the book. Again, enjoying just seems like the wrong word to use, but y'all know what I mean. Lastly, I ended this experiment by choosing none other than Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I considered a couple of other books because admittedly, I have read this book like six times by now, but... When I was choosing the books for this, I was like, oh my God, if I hate The Bluest Eye again, I'm going to need to end with a book that I know I like. So maybe that's cheating a little bit. But in my defense, I haven't read it in a couple of years as a surprise to no one. I still love it. But what did surprise me is how I found myself naturally reading it through a more analytical lens. I think reading these three books so close together put my mind back in that role of English student. And I was paying more attention to the themes, the character arcs, the symbolism, things that I just don't really think that much about when I read a book just for fun. And I hadn't read this book specifically through that lens since high school. And it really helped me appreciate the story in a new way. Goodness gracious, I am now realizing I also did not explain what Rebecca is about. It is about, oof, how do you explain Rebecca? It's about a naive, young adult woman who marries a much older man and is kind of haunted by the looming presence of his dead wife. Content warnings in here for death, for toxic relationship, for a whole host of other things, not nearly as triggering as the bluest eye or even the awakening. But it's, it is a really, it is just one of my favorite books of all time. It really helped cement that for me because I did read it through that more critical lens again. And I'm, I'm kind of excited now to give it, you know, for my next reread. 
have to say, wrapping up, I loved doing this experiment so much. I might do it again in a few months. It's fun to revisit that period of my life. Like I have vivid memories of the classroom that I was in when I was discussing the awakening. I remember the summer that I read Rebecca. And so like just thinking back on that. And because it was such a period in my life when I kind of solidified me as a reader, you know, like capital A, capital R, a reader, that became such a part of my identity. And I see how much I've grown since then. So I'm really grateful that I did it and I kind of want to do it again. Maybe I'll share it with y'all. Have you gone back and reread your books from high school or college? Did you find that your thoughts had changed? Have you read any of these books and want to share your thoughts with me? Hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, anywhere at Sally Simply. Until next time, happy reading. Allow me to introduce you to Madame Rastel by Jennifer Wright. Out now from Hachette Books. Madame Rastel is a sharp, witty, gilded age medical history which introduces us to an iconic yet tragically overlooked feminist heroine, a glamorous women's healthcare provider in Manhattan known to the world as Madame Rastel. A celebrity in her day with a flair for high fashion and public petty beefs, Rastel was a self-made woman and a single mother who used her wit, her compassion, and her knowledge of family medicine to become one of the most in-demand medical workers in New York. Before the 19th century, abortion and birth control were not only legal in the United States, but fairly common. And public health care needs for women and men alike were largely handled by midwives and female healers. However, after the birth of the clinic, newly minted MDs, newly minted male MDs wanted to push women out of their space by forcing women back into the home and turning medicine into a standardized male-only practice. By unraveling the misogynistic and misleading lives that put women's health in jeopardy, Wright simultaneously restores Ristel to her rightful place in history and obliterates the faulty, fractured reasoning underlying the very foundation of what has since been dubbed the pro thought-provoking, character-driven, and funny and feminist as all hell. Madame Ristel is required reading for anyone and everyone who believes that when it comes to women's rights, women's bodies, and women's history, women should have the last word. Pick up your copy of Madame Ristel, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless, and Infamous Abortionist by Jennifer Wright, out now from Hashtag Books. Hey, hey, and welcome to Feminist Book Club Podcast, the show that brings you the best of the best feminist content. I'm your host, Neba from Notes by Neba, and today I am joined by a very good friend of mine, Dr. Poetry. She is currently working as a scientist over in Ghana, working on Black reproductive health. And if you're interested in hearing more about that, we've created a little episode and we'll be linking that in the show notes. But today I'm very excited to have her on the podcast to talk a little bit more about her spoken word work. Dr. Poetry, I'm so excited to bring you back on here. Oh, thank you. Happy to share. Thank you so much. Certainly. I know before we get started on some of your spoken word and your creative process, you have a tribute ancestors. Please feel free to, to share that here. Yes, thank you so much. So as a Black woman in a reproductive health sciences, my academic journey in health and science and wellness and global health is definitely guided by these beautiful le- legacies of my, of my ancestors or seven ancestors who I feel resonate with my spirit and 
My philosophy about this is that historical memories not only health and wellness, but also the lived experience of both the patient and providers. So as a health scholar, I always try to give honor to the ancestors that shaped me and held me up during the process of rigorous academic training. And so to set the tone for my own well-being, I highlight them and I'll tell you a little bit about them. So feel free to say their names with me as I talk a little bit about what they've meant to me. I speak the name of Mary Turner. Mary Turner Mary is the Turner. first reported. Thank you, Ashe. And Ashe means just a, a form of a, a call and response agreement. So Mary Turner, she's the first reported Black woman who was lynched by white men while she was eight months pregnant in 1918. And the story of Mary Turner is often forgotten in the discourse of maternal and child reproductive health. However, I choose to say her name in my research to honor the violence and the trauma of many prenatal stories untold in healthcare science. And so I speak Mary Turner. Also speaking of Henry the Adelag. There's so much that can be Henry said Adelag. about Alec. Yes, Henry Adelag. There's so much that can be said about the legacy of Henry Adelag or known as the HeLa cell. However, one of the connections that the most with me about the HeLa cells and Henrietta was that she was a Black American woman whose cells were taken by white scientists without her informed consent due to racism, medical racism. Her cells went on to generate and uh, cultivate hundreds of drug discoveries, including like the polio vaccine. And throughout these treatments, she, her cells also contributed to treatments in sickle cell disease, which is one of the, the diseases that I focus on, patient perceptions and patient experiences with sickle cell disease. And so in my research, I always try to honor the legacy and the journey of Henrietta Lacks, primarily because I hope that her family receives the genuine credit that they rightfully so deserve for these scientific innovations that have continuously elevated so many people with sickle cell and many genetic conditions. So I say the name of Henrietta Lacks and Mary Turner to ground this more, to ground this moment for Black history as well as women's history. Maybe I have my personal, two personal ancestors, if you'd like me to. Annie Stanley Thomas is my paternal grandmother. She was a traditional healer, an order, and a medicine woman. She worked as a field hand on a cotton field in rural Georgia. She showed me her hands as a child. She said she used to pick barrels and barrels of cotton in the south, of, in the rural parts of the south in Georgia. She only had a seventh grade education and she encouraged me to attend Spelman College, which is a historically black college for women in Atlanta, Georgia. So in 2010, my grandmother's prayers enabled me to be the first of my family to graduate from Spelman College with honors. And so I always think of my grandmother who had only a seventh grade education, who worked on a cotton field, but she was a, a lay health worker and a medicine woman. And I believe she transferred her spiritual knowledge to me and carried me over into the research that I do now in health and science. So I always speak her name, Annalise, and Annie Stanley Thomas. And last but not least, my maternal grandmother. My maternal grandmother, her name is Mary Miller Brown. She gave birth to 13 children, which my biological mother is the third oldest. My grandmother was the matriarch of our family. However, she was also paralyzed from the waist down and she had type two. And as a child, I would spend summers at her home in coastal Georgia, where she lived on acres and acres and acres and <laughs> lots of acres of land owned by my grandfather. It was called the Brown Land. So I do come from a family of land owners in the South. And during those summers at her home, 
I learned to be her caretaker. So a lot of the grandchildren would caretake for my grandmother, including preparing her foods and how to give her insulin shots. So it was the first time I had learned how to give someone an insulin shot in their arm to help manage diabetes. And so I would sit with my grandmother and read her my poetry. And my grandmother, I believe, is one of the first people that taught me how to be sensitive, how to be sensitive with people and how to be sensitive to the patients that I work with. So I speak the name of Mary Miller it's really beautiful. I almost wonder, like, it's just having empathy, right? It's mm. the empathy for your patient and understanding where they're coming from. And I'm glad we started this off with a tribute to these incredible women who let them not be forgotten. We don't yes. come from nothingness. We all have roots, whether those are roots that might be more painful or roots that might be different from that. Yes. So I know you have some spoken word piece as well to share for us today. Yes. I'm really excited about this one as I know it's more personal and is about your journey as a Black woman. So yes, take it away. Yes, thank you so much, Nipa. So this piece I wrote over 10 years ago. It, I believe, has memorized me and has carried me through some very thing and trying times during my academic journey. And so this poem is called My Voice. And then I share it with you as you may want to think of your own ancestors and say their names and think of your own voice and where that, where that comes from and how it connects to what you're doing in the present day. So here we go. It all started when I was four years old with the five stands of poem and in my baby brown hand, there was a microphone. You see, before I was born, I was predestined to be a griot and spoken word while being transformed into a human in the womb. And my pediatrician was confused because there was a virus growing on the inside of my body. Even international researchers from China couldn't define it. And this little black baby was growing a revolution attached like parasites to her immune system. You see, my grandmama didn't just feed me soul food. She fed me life. She looked me into my eyes at the age of four and declared that I was going to be a spoken word artist who would speed lights told me to get used to holding a pen because from now until I die, I was going to write from the Black child to a Black woman. I'm still nervous when I speak, but I'm thankful because it strengthens my humility. There's a threefold trinity protesting in the epitome holding Black picket signs that read, thou shalt not put your history on the shelf and thou shalt always be yourself, see. And my poems are the Nile River and the Sahara Desert. And in my sentences, I have the faith the size of a mustard seed that can move and even rebuild my Everest. Born from the black warrior that lives inside of me to the strange tribal queens who carry me in their womb for nine months and wrap kids take part firmly around their waist to raise me on their backs. Set me in Indian style so that I could receive a healing from their storytelling of his story and her story and our history. You see, I, I am my village's baby. And they made me their poet because they knew that in the 21st century, we would need a positive Black representation that would base our heritage on the truth. That's why it's important for me to empathize with my roots. We write the history books from my point of view, engrave my walls with empowering words of sojourner truth. I said, ain't I a woman? Ain't I a poet? My revolution is to bring back the griot inside of my people of color. It's extraordinary because we're all brothers and sisters from the same damn mothers. So the woman you see before you wasn't given toys to play with as a toddler, no. She was given a heritage and a black fist called fight the power. And real activism does not have an age. And diligence does not have an hour. So after this poem, I meant after this poem, you can either hate me or join me. 
But at some point, you have to believe in the power of a child prodigy. And you can't spell profit without the letters P-O-E-T. And if you're not thinking too long about that, please be advised of upgrade your literacy. I have rededicated my mission to the globalization of healing, that I will lose my voice for the cause, that I will use my voice for God, that I will use my voice for this cause. So tell me, what are you willing to use your voice for? Well, I have, I have chills. I have shivers. My whole body is shaking. Oh, God, the ending really hits, really hits. That was really beautiful. I love that you've written this yeah. 10 years ago, and it's still I know. so freaking relevant today. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, it, you know, when you. when you mentioned the virus instantly, I think of, you know, COVID and everything. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, God, the ties to, to current truly history is a cycle. It is so true. And this is a... A piece that calls to break that cycle into a more positive way, a more just way for a breakthrough, you know. And I, the way to break anything is to remember who you are. And we can only remember who we are if we remember our voice. We have an authentic yeah. voice that is ours. That's, yes, connected to our ancestors, but it's ours, independent of our mothers, our fathers. Our, it is our personal voice that is a part of the collective voice. And so in order for me to remember who I am, I had to remember that I have voice and it's not, it's not weak. It is staying strong in a test of time. It's really beautiful. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to hear more about like your creative process during this. In spoken word and poetry, there's always this balance between being like how precise you want to get versus like mm-hmm. how much you're just conveying sort of the energy and the vibe of what's going mm-hmm. on. And I think that's a big mm-hmm. way of keeping the pieces to be relevant in times in the future or times in the past. So I'm yes. curious if you can tell us a little more about like your creative process and how yeah. this ties into your science work, your identity. Yes, I love that question. Honestly, so reproductive health science is what I do. Poetry is who I It's the poet that became the researcher, not the other way around. I believe that the reason why I am such a researcher who has an empathy or sensitivity is because I recognize the texture of human life and poetry allows me to see the texture in so many different formats. Also, I think of one of another ancestor, Louis Lattimore. I learned about him as a child. He's a scientist born on September 4th, which is also my birthday. Louis Lattimore was a scientist, but he also wrote poetry. And so there's something special about this day where you're also a person who does science and does arts, hence College of Arts and Sciences. <laughs> but um, I'm truly an artist and truly art is science, in my, in my opinion. Part of my process, though, is because science is so rigorous and structured and has such a rigid format that feels nickel and cold sometimes. The poetry yeah. for me is my. We're trying very hard to like put everything into boxes so that they can yeah. make good comparisons. But the problem mm-hmm. is that only works for things that are very like quantitative and yeah. life and biology and people and emotions and psychology. These are all like organic substances. So we're trying yep. to like force things into boxes that never were in boxes in the first place. So I question, the, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I come from ancestors who are very oral. We come from a oral culture. And so we heal in circles. We heal through voice and narratives. 
We heal through the word. We heal through the power of words and spoken word. Drum circle, indigenous, you know, remembrance. So it's just the poetry for me is who I am. And it helps me to have an outlet, a healing process. It helps me to rise up when I feel troubled, I guess, through any type of element that I'm going through. I can always sit down and write a poem and it instantly lifts my life force energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really mind-blowing to me how much we've, like, switched from oral things into, like, text-based things. Like, even videos, mm-hmm. to some extent, are, like, text-based. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the role of, like, spoken word and, like, storytelling is so much lesser than the role of, like, books and stuff. And yeah, I was reading this science fiction where there's this other planet and there's these other aliens. And the way in which they write down their books, when they read their books, they put this instrument into the grooves of the book and out comes not just the story and the text, but out comes tone and the intonation and the way mm-hmm. the words are said, which really adds like just such a different like mm-hmm. energy to the whole thing. Like listeners, I'm sure yes. y'all also really felt that when Dr. Poetry was giving us her spoken <laughs> word. And that's so different from Thank just you. reading it text on its screen. And so mm-hmm. on this alien planet, there's this instrument that they use and they see the tone but every time that they run this instrument it slightly damages the surface of the book Mm. and changes kind of the grooves that the instrument is going in because every time you do that you change like you know the friction and all that stuff and so a little bit of that is lost every time so it creates this interesting culture of like what happens when you have these things that are perfectly preserved exactly as they were but every time you play them back it deteriorates the quality of it. It's mm. kind of how that goes. And here, luckily, <laughs> we can listen to smoke and word pieces as much as we'd like to. They may be yeah. different every time, but that doesn't make, make them any less relevant or any less poignant and relevant to our lives. Um, yes. So thank you so, so much for sharing that. I'm curious, does all of your poetry and spoken word come from like your own identities? I know you mentioned you had a piece about like women's history. So I've been doing spoken word poetry since I was a child, like around what, four or five. I memorized my first piece. My sister is a poet and my mom is a writer. So my sister, my older sister, she was practicing for a poetry contest. And I, with the little sister, I ended up memorizing her poem. And then my mom realized, oh, snap, you can actually do poetry. <laughs> so they started, they just put me in all these church programs and workshops. And next thing you know, I was like this child poet that they were shifting to different agendas. Like, and so, but I loved it. I loved it. And I just, I loved writing poetry and I realized I had a gift for it. So when life really got hard, probably in like middle school, like dealing with like things like bullying and, all types of stuff that kids deal with in middle school. Colorism. I grew up as a very visibly Black child, Black woman, a Black girl. And so colorism was a big deal where I grew up, you know, light skin, dark skin issues. And so I started writing and it was my, it was my voice. It was what saved me because I couldn't really, I'm an introvert. And so I couldn't really speak how I felt to a lot of people. But inside my poetry, I could create a world that no one else could could infiltrate. And I felt that's my voice. And I think my poetry voice to me within myself is louder than my actual voice. It's almost like you <laughs> enter into like a different version of yourself where, yeah. you know, you are this person who's giving these really impactful stories in such an impactful way. Yeah. Yes, I love that question. Thank you. 
So as we wrap up here, I just have two quick questions. Firstly, this is Feminist Book Club. So I'm curious first mm-hmm. to hear what does feminism mean to you? And then secondly, mm. as a book club, what are you reading right now? We recommend mm. to our listeners. Yes, such great questions. First, I would say feminism, such a legacy, right? I would say I am a Black feminist. And a lot of my research, I've used Black feminist thought. Shout out to Patricia Hill Collins, who wrote Black feminist thought. But it did not stop there. There was Anna Julia Cooper was one of the first Black feminists or womenists that I learned about. And Anna Julia Cooper, she wrote a book called A Voice from the South. And she was so powerful. One of the quotes from her her book, she said, where and when I entered, the whole Negro race enters with. And so that quote, we interrogated like crazy back in undergrad at Feldman. But it was true because for a lot of Black women, we didn't know which intersection to go to to go through. If there was a door on called color for colors only or whites only, black women, which one do we enter? Or if it was woman only and colored only, like we could enter through both doors, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. So the intersectionality of being a black woman who could check woman and black, woman and colored at that time, there was not many spaces for us to really grapple with what that meant for our daily lived experience. And so Anna Julia Cooper, there's Angela Davis that comes to mind. There's also many other scholars like Crenshaw. A lot of these scholars who wrote about intersectionality or matrices of domination and what it means to check multiple intersections and still show up. So that's what I would say I lead toward those political tenets, as well as trying to be very thoughtful of censoring it in my work on reproductive health for Black. Yeah. And what I'm reading now, oh gosh, I'm reading everything. I say reading everything. I love to read. I wake up and I read (laughs) articles. I have a collection of books and one that really stands out to me right now. I'm reading through Sacred Woman a little bit by Queen of Fua. I wouldn't say that it's easy read. It's one of those reads that you have to digest in doses. It is a book more about (laughs) divine feminine energy, Fumit Woodfree. So I'm really interested more like the mind, body, spirit connection to health and wellness lately. Studying the biology, but also studying the the soul and the spirit and its connection to health. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Listeners, all of these books and details will be kept in our show notes as always. Dr. Poetry, where can our listeners find you online if they want to reach out, tell you how amazing that was, or just just learn more about you? Yes, thank you. I would love to stay connected. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Poetry underscore the scholar. And I'm also on Instagram, Dr. D underscore Shamika Poetry Queen. So I'd love to stay in touch. And my email, permanent email is ShamikaPoetryThomas at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out and let's talk. Awesome. Thank you so much. All video will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, listeners. And as always, see you on the next page. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature.